Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Well... Good afternoon, and uh, we're so excited to get into this word today, so let's just jump right in. Uh, This is actually part two of Decision 2020. I did the first message on this a few weeks ago, about a month ago, so you could check that out. But this looks at this particular moment in this season that we're in. We are two days away from Election Day. But... Unlike in previous years, there has been a record-breaking number of people who have voted early. Over 90 million people, which is two-thirds of the total amount of people who voted at all four years ago, have already voted. And today, my wife, my daughter, and I were a part of that number. We got our sticker. We did our voting early. It was an incredible experience. And it's interesting because... No matter who you vote for, people essentially base their vote on several different factors. A candidate's vision, uh, their plan, and who they are as a person, their character. And it's really interesting to note that we're in an incredibly polarized season as an electorate, where people have very different views on who is the best person to take our society, our our nation into the direction that it should go. In fact, the expectations are that the results of this election are likely to be even uh, scrutinized, potentially challenged, and even some are boarding up buildings uh, in in expectation of potential uh, conflict in the streets. So, so what should Christians do in a season like this, in a moment like this? Well, fortunately, there is an agenda and there is a person who we look to whose vision, whose plan, and whose character is greater than any candidate that we can look at and look upon. And Jesus has given that agenda that we're going to look at in Matthew chapter 6. Now, Matthew 5 through 7 is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And in it, Jesus gave God's kingdom agenda. And at the climax in chapter 6, what we're going to be looking at today is probably the most well-known prayer in the world. And it's interesting that in the midst of a, a, a Sermon on the Mount, in the midst of laying out his kingdom agenda, that the apex of it wouldn't be uh, something that we are supposed to do, that, you know, but something that we're supposed to be, which is people of prayer. And so he lays out this, uh, this detail of, of this outline of how we're to pray. And isn't it interesting that as people, we prefer plans over prayer. <laughs> We, we think prayer, all right, all right, like, yeah, yeah, like, let's get to the real stuff, right? Like, prayer is something we do to try to sanctify the real work that's supposed to happen, as opposed to seeing it as the work itself. 
So we're going to look at that. But the thing that's really fascinating is the fact that before Jesus gave instructions about how to pray, he gave instructions on how not to pray. In verse seven of chapter six in Matthew, we see Jesus say this. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. And it's interesting. So before he jumps off into to, to how to pray, he says, don't, do, don't be like them, in verse 8, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now here when he talks, Gentiles refers to the pagan nations. He's saying the way everybody else in the world prays is a type of perspective that essentially still looks at it as a work, right? Like the common perspective is that somehow my effort, somehow my intensity, somehow the words that I'm going to say is like a magic mantra or a incantation that will cause God to move or whatever deity I'm serving. And Jesus contrasts that and say, no, 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 no. Prayer isn't about you and your ability to string together some nice, eloquent words, but prayer is about the person who you're talking to. So meaningless repetition isn't the point at all. He says that prayer is supposed to draw us into relationship with God. And we know it because it's not about us getting our own way, but being so caught up in who God is that our will becomes melded into his and his perspective. And we get to know him better and we get to be more intense and intimate with him. Prayer changes things, but we don't realize that the thing that is supposed to change the most is us. So he says, pray then in this way. And that's where we look at God's kingdom agenda. Now, it's important for you to say when he says pray in this way, he's not saying pray these exact words every time you open up your mouth because he just got finished talking about meaningless repetitions. He's saying that in this matter, in this manner, that this is a outline, a format of how to hit the main points in prayer. And so it is a helpful way to even be thinking in the back of your mind, okay, make sure I get these different aspects of what I'm going to endorse in God's kingdom agenda straight so that when I pray, regardless of what the specific words, that I keep all of these things in mind. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying the exact words, but when he says pray like this, he's talking about in this outline, in this format. And the first thing we find, the first thing we ought to endorse is worship in prayer. Oh, how often do we go and pray? And the first thing we go to is I need this, I need that, I need this. He says, no, 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 no. Look at our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And there's a few things we have to break down there. Notice, first of all, that the first word is our, not my father, not me, but it's a corporate understanding, a corporate awareness that I am actually connected to other people, right? Like I'm coming as part of a community, not just myself. But then look at Father. Now this was groundbreaking and this was a radical idea that you could talk to God in such intimate way as to call him Father. Now how many of us know that not all of us can call him Father? See, God created everyone, but not all of them have been adopted into his family. In order to do that, you have to have faith in his son. He who the son sets free is free indeed. And he's saying that our father in heaven, that if I have that relationship with him, that I can identify him as the one who has adopted me into his family. And as a result of that, I can call him father. Now it says, who is in heaven? 
Now, when he gives that address, what, he, what he's not saying is that uh, somehow I got to like do long distance. I remember long distance phone call when you said long distance, right? Like it's not a, a long distance phone call, but what it's saying is heaven was known to be the control center of the universe. It's talking about God's sovereignty. He's above the nations. He's not just another person that I go to like I'm calling the White House or I'm calling my local senator. He's saying, no, 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 God is above all the nations. He's in heaven, and so it's appealing to his sovereignty and saying that he's above the nations. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed. Not a word that we use a whole lot now today. But hallowed has to do with holy. Saying holy is your name. And this is probably the, holy is probably the least understood and valued word in the English language is often used before some type of profanity. But what he's saying here is that God's name is holy. It's set apart. It's distinct and that you should not use this name any old kind of way. You know, we live in a culture where it's okay for someone to cut somebody out and invoke God's name in doing it. And he's saying, no, 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 no. That's not how it's supposed to work. In fact, you know, I'm studying Hebrew right now in seminary. And there's an interesting thing that I learned while studying Hebrew. You see, the name for God, like the proper name is, is, is so sacred and it's so holy that it's, it's called the Tetragrammaton. There's four letters that make it. And when you get to this word in, in Hebrew, in the Hebrew text, that you're taught not to actually try to sound it and pronounce it out because the way that the Hebrews would, would actually read, when they got to that word, they wouldn't say Yahweh. Or Yahweh, they wouldn't say that. They would go Adonai. They would, they, would say, they would call him by his title and not by his name because his name was so holy. Some the scribes would actually, when they got to that word, put the pen down, cleanse themselves ceremoniously, and write the word because it was that holy. Is God's name holy to you? Because if it's not, then he says, if you don't know what to do my, with my name, then keep my name out of your mouth. God's name is holy. So the second, so first point is we have to endorse worship. The second is we have to endorse allegiance. He says, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. See, we skip past this and we don't even know all of what we're saying when we say these words. Y'all remember the Pledge of Allegiance? Say it in school, put your hand over your eye. Pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. God bless America, right? You remember that? Well, when he's saying, when we say your kingdom come, we're saying I am allying myself and I am acknowledging that there is a kingdom, that there's a, 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 a superior agenda than my own. May your kingdom come. And unfortunately, there's been a lot of confusion in, in the history of Christendom between men's empire and God's kingdom. See, see there, there becomes a, a holy mixture oftentimes when people want to, uh, to conquest lands, want to enslave peoples, want to take over stuff that doesn't belong to them and then put God's name on it. But that's not what this is talking about because that's an unholy mixture. Y'all know about an unholy mixture, right? Unholy mixtures are, are things that should not be together, but people put them together and it causes us like to gag and have a gag reflex. This came up this week. We saw an unholy mixture. 
uh, Drake, someone posted a picture of his menu for his 32nd birthday at a birthday party. And one of the items on the menu was macaroni and cheese. But unfortunately, someone didn't understand about an unholy mixture. And part of the description of the ingredients was sun-dried tomatoes, capers, and raisins. It's unholy. Like it, 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 we, there was an immediate reaction because it was like this should not be. This is this. Is, somebody has defiled macaroni and cheese. How much more should we realize that God's kingdom and earthly nations are two separate entities and beings? And, and the rest of this prayer depends on us understanding God's kingdom. So let me jump into it a little bit more. This is what the theologian George Ladd said about the gospel of the kingdom. He says, the gospel must not only offer a personal salvation in the future life of those who believe. It must also transform all of the relationships of life here and now and thus cause the kingdom of God to prevail in all of the world. The mission of Jesus brought not just a new teaching, but a new event. Oh, y'all don't know what I just said. It's not just about a teaching, but it's about an event. You see, Jesus didn't just say, you know, hey, I'm here to tell you that God's kingdom one day is going to come. So just hold out for that. And maybe one day you'll be healed. He told the the lame man, take up your mat and walk because God's salvation is right here. He didn't just say to Mary and Martha when they they were weeping about Lazarus being dead and they said, if you would have been here, Lord, then he wouldn't have died. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he called Lazarus out of the tomb. You see, Jesus started a new thing. He, He announced God's kingdom was here and that that kingdom is holistic, it is transformative, and it impacts all of our lives. Okay, so what, Russell? What's the point? Well, what does that look like? It looks like God having control and being king in your relationships, in your vocation, in our time, in everything that comes and enters into our mind and our heart in terms of what we consider entertainment. That God in his kingdom has something to say about that. Because when we enter into that kingdom, we become part of the kingdom citizens. And it also affects, and it ought to affect our politics. This year, healthcare is on the ballot. Immigration is on the ballot. Race, justice, the lives of the unborn, the economy, these are all things that go beyond what's just going to help my personal bank account and my personal taxes and what's going to actually be something that reflects the things that God cares about in this world. The widow, the poor, the orphan, the immigrant. And God cares about these issues and these ideas, and he calls us to say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that leads me to number three. We have to endorse submission. Brace yourself for this one, because we don't like that word. Submission. You see, it's one thing to acknowledge God's kingdom and go, okay, yes, that's what God's kingdom is. It's his rule and it's his reign in every nook and cranny of society. But it's another to say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Bring heaven down here. Let your rule be down here. Let what you want come down here. Because guess what? That starts with me. It's not just some prayer that God will, you know, somehow magically stop having there be corrupt politicians. 
It's that I will be part of the work at putting out corrupt politicians and that I myself will not be a corrupt person. And if we're honest, submission is hard. It's kind of baked into our culture to be hard. I mean, literally, the U.S. is a country that started in rebellion to a king. Like, like that's kind of what, what, what the, what's baked in in our culture. Western culture is one that's the product of suspicion to authority. You can look up the Enlightenment at another time. But you ever notice that even the plots of Disney movies usually entail a young person rebelling against authority in order to find their true purpose and meaning in life? Like, it's just the way that our culture has caused us to think. But the, the, and so because of that, even theologically, Christians have sometimes lost the vision of what God is doing when we say your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, we kind of have this eschatology. Eschatology is just the last things. What happens when Jesus comes back? And there's this eschatology that has creeped in that says, basically, Jesus comes back, the earth is destroyed, and then heaven just arrives. But that's not what the text says. John says he sees a new heaven and a new earth, that it gets renovated, it gets renewed, it gets changed and transformed, but earth is still a part of the story. And it has incredible implications for us. Because what that means... My musical friends can appreciate this. See, when, when, when you sing and you hear people that are off tune and off key and not in sync, it's, it's, a, it's a terrible noise. And that's what's happening right now because earth is not harmonizing with heaven. But then when God comes back, it says that they're going to be in three-part harmony, heaven, earth, and Jesus all together combined, singing one note. And we get to be a part of that process of warming up the choir now. Will we sing in tune with God? But we're not there yet. And so in the meantime, God has put something in place called authority, governing authority. In Romans 13, 1 and 2, we see every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Now, this text has often been misused to argue for mindless compliance, but that's not what Paul is saying. We know this because Paul himself wrote several letters from prison because he refused to abide by the kingdoms or the empire's rule that he not preached the gospel. So anytime a government is in opposition to the gospel, then we see where our allegiance lies. However, there is an aspect of recognizing that God's plan, his ideal is that we uh, actually respond to governing officials and we recognize that that's been put there in place. And so when we live in a democratic republic that depends on voting in order to select its officials, then that, what that means and implies is that we should participate in that process that has been laid out but we have to endorse submission. The fourth thing is endorse petition. Endorse petition. What does it specifically look like for God to reign over us? And the, and the last few words of this prayer kind of reflects that and we get to see based, what we should do based on what God has done. What do I mean? He says, give us this day our daily bread. <sighs> For most of human history, food scarcity was the norm. People didn't know where their next meal was potentially gonna come from. And in the midst of that, 
He's saying that posture yourself in a posture of dependence where you acknowledge the fact that every good and perfect thing comes from God. I need you. Do you, are you willing to admit your need? Yeah, it might not be, you might not be thinking I need like food every day, even though I do. But in every single aspect of relationship, do you depend on God for wisdom? Do you, do you depend on God for knowing what you should do next in this next difficult decision? Do you depend on God before you go into a voting booth? But it also shows this kingdom, because check it. We get a picture and a snapshot of what it looks like of what to do with power. Because the implicit idea behind this prayer is ask the one who is sovereign and over everything and he will give it to you. Which also indicates that if we're in a position to be able to feed somebody else, then we should. Okay, you ain't not got there. Okay, this is at least the, the, fifth, the, fifth, the fifth point gets to our greatest need. Forgive us our debts, for we also forgive our debtors. We must endorse confession. We have to endorse confession. Now, some of you may have grown up hearing, forgive us our trespasses or forgive us our sins. Um, but in, in Matthew, the word here, the primary use of it is forgive us our debts. And it, and it brings to mind financial uh, burden and need. Now, if there's ever been a society that knows something about debt, it's America. <laughs> we have a record high of 2019, $14.1 trillion in debt. The average, the average person has over $8,000 in, in debt. What would it look like for that debt to be forgiven? I know personally, I spent over a decade and a half or two paying for student loans. And so last year, do y'all remember when you used to go to graduations in person and people was there? Last year, Robert Smith was speaking at Morehouse College's graduation. And out of the blue, he announced to all those there that all of them that had student loans, he was going to forgive their student loan debt. Oh my gosh, you should have saw the looks on their faces. I mean, 400 people suddenly realized that their $30,000 in debt, gone. Their $25,000, gone. Anything that they owed, he said, was gone. They began to chant, MVP, MVP, MVP. And then he immediately said, pay this forward and show it with your words, your actions, and your deeds. Imagine if someone who had that $30,000 of debt removed immediately at a graduation turned to somebody that owed them $5 and was like, yo, we about to throw hands if you don't give me what I, I, you, I, I'm owed. That's the picture that Jesus is drawing here with forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors because he's saying that we have somebody far greater than Robert Smith. He didn't just write a check. He got nailed to a cross and said, it is finished. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And every single thing that you have done, that I have done, it was nailed to that tree. And he says, now, look, forgive us our debts for we forgive our debtors. In other words, we have to really question if we've really been forgiven if we don't forgive other people. Because if I don't recognize the full extent of what it is that God has done for me, then I, I, there's no way I can forgive somebody else. And in our season, in our electorate right now, we have people that don't want to forgive someone else based on who they voted for. 
And the reality is God calls us to a higher level, a higher kingdom. Now, again, forgiveness doesn't mean trust. Amen. (laughs) Those are two different things, but it means releasing a debt. Number six, endorse deliverance. Victor, could you uh, give me that water bottle? I'm a little raspy. Endorse deliverance. Thank you. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, this word translated as temptation could also be translated trials, depending on its usage. And what it's actually saying, and this is why we have to put them together, is Jesus is asking people to pray, Lord, help me to stay away from difficult trials and deliver us from the temptations of the evil one. Not just evil in in broad way. Evil has a source and his name is Satan. And what this is saying is that, you see, God will give us a test to call us up. Satan will try to tempt us to bring us down. And those are two different things. And we have to recognize that we need to ask for deliverance because this is a spiritual battle. And far too often we think we wrestle with flesh and blood. But Paul tells us, no, it's principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in all high places. We need to stop seeing each other as the enemy and start to recognize that there's a greater enemy involved. It's amazing to see that God's love protects us even in the midst of that. First John 3, 1 says, so how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such are we. It's amazing. He says, look how great, and that word great in the Greek actually means from what country does this come from? What country is this love? How is it even fathomable? And what he's saying is that the type of love that God has for us, it, it, it blocks out every sin. It, 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 it purges every guilt from us. It gives us the ability to forgive others. And as a result of that, we can worship. In verse 13b, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Amen. And what he's saying there is that we should, when we think about all of who God is, when we think about what he's provided for us, when we think about what he's done, when we think about his agenda and his kingdom, it should bring us to worship on our knees. It should call us to just cry out and say, God, I need you. Thank you. You are so good. Do my prayers. Call me to worship. Do my prayers. Call me to call on the God and recognize him as the one who I absolutely depend on and need. Do you see him that way? Is, is, pr- is prayer like food to you? Well, there was a old time Baptist preacher named S.M. Lockridge who decided to call the roll, as the old folks used to call it. That's when you kind of name all the names of Jesus and kind of help people to try to remember what does it mean when we talk about this kingdom and this king? He said, talking about Jesus, he's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. That's Jesus. That's my king. Do you know him? He's the king of Israel. He's the king of heaven. And he's the Lord of lords. He's the only one qualified to be a sufficient savior. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available to the tried and the tempted. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and he sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He discharges debtors. 
that's Jesus. That's my king. Do you know him? He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't hold him and the grave couldn't stop him. That's our king. And that's the one whose kingdom we endorse today. Do you know him? We don't just pray on our knees. We pray with our feet. This isn't an attempt to discourage anyone. You know, if you've been around and you've heard Bridge, you know, we are all about that action. But especially in this season, in this moment that we're in, and many people are anxious and many people are, are, are stressed, we have to remember that ultimately, in addition to what we do, we also have to be. We often say that baptism isn't the finish line, it's the starting line. And similarly, voting isn't the finish line, but it's the starting line. And we must pray actively and work actively for the kingdom to come, not through an elephant or through a donkey, but through the lamb. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this opportunity to worship you, to be reminded of the kingdom and the glory of who you are. We ask that you would um, just fill us with your spirit. Remind us that whatever come what may, that you are there to guide us that your kingdom is the one that we trust in. Your kingdom is the one that we have voted for with our lives. And so we ask that as we go out, as we vote, as we act to help live out kingdom principles on this earth as it is in heaven, that you would ultimately allow us to rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.